You want to... Do you want me to read the thing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you want to go ahead and read the thing for us? As a child, Henry Ford, the eldest son of a prosperous Michigan farm family, loved nothing more than machines. Young Henry was fascinated by the possibilities of energy and mechanics, going so far as to build himself a machine shop off the family home, where he managed to construct a working steam engine before his 16th birthday. Homemade combustion engines followed his apprenticeship at two Detroit machinists, and by 1889, Henry Ford had built his first car, the creatively named Quadricycle. The design featured bicycle wheels, a chain drive, and a doorbell for a horn. It could carry two people and achieve a top speed of 20 miles per hour. As machines go, the quadricycle wasn't stunningly beautiful, but it worked. So well, in fact, that young Henry was able to sell it for $200 in 1896 and build two more. These were faster and more powerful, and they sold as well. As a young husband and father, Henry Ford quit his job to build race cars using his sweepstake prizes, because he won nearly every race his quadricycles competed in, and investment money to found the Ford Motor Company in 1903. Within a few years, Ford's Model T car had revolutionized American travel. Not so much because of the automobile itself, which was known to be uncomfortable, difficult to start, hard to break, and prone to leaking in rainy weather, but the price point. By 1915, Ford's approach to factory production had shaved the price of a Model T down to just $390, making it affordable to nearly every American relying on a horse and wagon. But it was the workflow, not the product, that was Ford's greatest machine. Inside his factories, the assembly line was run at nearly inhuman efficiency. Parts were designed to be interchangeable and easily produced at tremendous speeds. Even the raw materials themselves came from inside the company, with wood flowing from Ford-owned forests and sawmills, glass from Ford's own glass plant, and coal and iron being hauled by Ford railroads from Ford Mines in Ohio to his massive Ford Motor Company plant in River Rouge, Michigan, where they were promptly turned into chassis, wheels, engines, and automobile bodies. In fact, the only part of the Model T that didn't come from a Ford property was latex rubber. In the roaring 1920s, as one of the richest men in the world, Henry Ford decided he simply didn't want to keep paying British suppliers for the rubber used in his Model T's tires, hoses, and gaskets. Having found only success in his other sourcing ventures, he thought it was high time to start growing his own rubber trees. After all, how hard could it be? Answer, not hard, just impossible. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the founding and failure of Henry Ford's Brazilian rubber plantation, Fordlandia. Greg, you did an excellent job with that. Thank you. That was, that was a long one. We need to make the things smaller. Yeah. Anyway. Welcome to Relative Disasters the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context implications and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, Chief of Latex Sap Supply Operations here at Relative Disasters Corporation. And I'm her brother Greg, Acting Chair of Modern American Plantation Studies here at Relative Disasters University. So, uh, what do you know about a weird one. Henry Ford? <laughs> I thought we could begin there. What do you know about Henry Ford? Most of what I know about Henry Ford is either the American mythology of Henry Ford or the really bad stuff about him. I know that he basically invented the assembly line, uh, the human assembly line, mm -hmm. that his Model T was the uh, 
best-selling automobile of its time. Uh, and the, the, the sort of informal slogan was, you can have it in any color you want as long as it's black. Yeah. And... Um, that he was kind of a famously terrible human. Yes, like, he was. He was awful to his family and his kids, and he was buddy-buddy with the Nazis, and just, that's kind of what I know about Don't him. Don't forget the anti-Semitism and the anti-unionism. Well, yes. Well, the anti-unionism, I mean, come on, 1920s robber barons, basically. Nobody, nobody liked unions. Yeah, but he's different in that he doesn't care that much about money. Like, he's not... Fair. Yeah, he just really didn't like the idea of people organizing to disobey him. Yeah, he definitely <laughs> had control issues. I think that's the, the kindest way we could put that. Yeah, there we go. And I think the anti-Semitism stuff kind of plays into the Nazi stuff. Of course, so, yeah. Yep. Yeah, they tend to go hand in hand. Just seemed to be a, a fairly unpleasant dude to uh, once you get to know him. <laughs> <laughs> great from a distance. <laughs> Not so great close. Is he though? All right. So, uh, thank you so much for that intro to our first and hopefully only episode on Henry Ford. Uh, we're going to begin by citing our primary sources for this episode, which are the amazing book Fordlandia, The Rise and Fall of Henry Ford's Forgotten Jungle City by Greg Grandin. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a fast read. I thought it was absolutely fascinating, and it has pictures. Um, I also used the Fordlandia <laughs> digital collection at the Henry Ford Archive, which was really helpful for photos, especially. Oh, good. So, above all else, Henry Ford was a machinist. Like, yes. I would say the most important part of his personal makeup was that he loved moving parts, and particularly he loved efficiency in moving parts. He's not particularly talented as a designer or an inventor. But what he is good okay. at is squeezing every drop of efficiency out of any energy source, including humans. Okay. Uh, a little bit of background on this project. In the early days of Ford, the company, he built a bunch of other Ford models. I did not know this. He did it alphabetically. Yes, there's a Model A and a Model Q and a Model R and all that sort well, of Well, he goes stuff. up to S. So each model, some, yeah. some of them were not even produced, but he makes like a couple hundred a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he's, he had design documents for most yeah, of Yeah, they're really interesting. But what he's doing as he works his way through the alphabet is he's continually improving production. He's not making yes. that many changes to the model itself. He's not making the vehicles better. He's just making how he can produce them more efficient. Right. Like if you look at the Model T compared to its parent, the Model S, yeah. it's clear that the major changes are in the processes. Not necessarily the design. So right, by the Model right. T, he's gone through so many iterations of workflows and processes that it's he's becoming incredibly streamlined. And when he hits the Model T, he's at a place where he's able to make them really, really efficiently. And he does this with an assembly line. Right. I will not bore you with his principles of assembly, but basically <laughs> he, <Okay. laughs> he sees his purpose as being able to produce a car as quickly as possible and every choice that he makes in terms of the factory setup, the people he hires, uh, what color the factory is, all of those are decided on wow. yeah, for efficiency. Okay. okay. Now I had heard one thing that like he wanted all of his workers to be of a certain height. 
Did you run into that? Oh, that's that? interesting. It wouldn't surprise me. Like, he wouldn't hire you if you were, like, 5'6". You needed to be 5'9 to 6'2 or something. No, I did not read that. Um, okay. as we'll discuss, he had a number of, like, moral and social requirements. Yes. Which is, yeah. to me, is even mm. better than a height requirement because... <laughs> <laughs> So some of the things he was looking for are very arbitrary. Uh, So as you can imagine, Greg, it is boring and soul crushing to work on an assembly line. Have you had an assembly line job? I have actually had an assembly line job. Did you love it? I kind of did Mm -hmm. because like I have that brain that that enjoys doing the, the physical motion over and over again to see how you know, how quickly and efficiently I can do that. So I kind of feel <gasps> with Henry you. Ford he on that one. You for sure. Yeah. So in the early days of the Ford Motor Company's first production facilities, people would join and get trained and then they just quit. They would be like me and be like, this is so boring. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> I'm going to go uh, work that's in a not just. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that continues today. Of one course, of the hardest yeah. things about factory work is the, the turnover of it's like if you're there if you make it through the first year you've you've survived longer than like 90 percent of the other people who also were hired because so many people quit in the first yeah. year they just can't can't keep it's understandable <laughs> i think you have to have a special type of brain and a special type of motor skills to be able to be good at this work or even just to sure not hate it yeah. Ford does not like people quitting on him he doesn't like people doing things that he doesn't want them to do well it's wasted it's wasted efficiency yes. too because you know he spent all these time and resources training you what do you mean you're quitting right it drives him crazy So in 1914, he institutes a policy where he pays workers $5 a day for a 40-hour work week. This is well above what you could expect to earn in any kind of manufacturing job at this time. Yeah. This is a huge success. His turnover problem stops right away. And this is the point where he becomes a little bit extra. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Since this is such a huge incentive to workers, this this, um, limited work week... And the $5 yep. a day. He feels justified in asking for just a little bit more, right? He wants sure, you, the employee, sure. to have what he calls a sound home environment. He actually sets okay. up a whole department to oversee the hiring process. Uh, they're a sociological wow. department, they call themselves. They do all these okay. interviews, not just with you, the job candidate, but with your family and your neighbors. Oh, and they're looking for things okay. like thrift, cleanliness, good health moral values uh he wants you not only to have those values but to be married to someone who shares those values is henry ford single-handedly responsible for the united states uh, worker protection acts and stuff like that it would not surprise me <laughs> sorry i interrupted keep going uh he wants, you to, have he wants you to have kids and he wants you to be a teetotaler right he wants you to be sober. that makes sense you can't you can't work as efficiently if you're drunk oh not with that attitude you can't greg Speaking as somebody who has worked on an assembly line with drunk people. Trust me, so it, it doesn't work so well. Not well. Not well at all. All right. So in some ways, uh, this is a good step. Like, this is a positive movement forward socially. He hires sure. recent immigrants and workers of color, and he pays them the same as their American-born white counterparts as long as they meet those requirements. The moral values, right? Okay. A nice family. Okay. Uh, get behind that. This is a massive overstep into your workforce's personal life and habits. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it's a little it's a little far. 
Uh, but, you know, that said, people were willing to put up with having their personal habits poked into uh, in exchange for $5, I mean, $5 a day. $5 a day, yeah. yeah. And yeah. the hardest, most repetitive work you are ever likely to have in your lifetime. Uh, but it does work. Skilled workers stay on, training expenses go way down, and the types of people that Ford wants are being hired and they're staying on. Okay. But again, this there's a little bit of a dark kind of turn to his psyche at this point because Ford really gets his first taste of how good it feels to control hundreds of other people. Uh. I think to him, uh, workers are just little moving parts, and this is how he gets them to do what he wants for the factory to operate at peak, which is what he wants more than anything. He doesn't care about cars. Yeah. He doesn't care about money. He wants the factory yeah. to produce as efficiently as possible. That is the only thing okay. he cares about. Okay. At one point, right. someone asks him how much money he's worth. He's one of the richest men in the world at this point. And he yeah. says, I don't know, and I don't give a damn. <laughs> And he meant it. Yeah, I think he really was telling the truth. He doesn't care about travel. He doesn't care about his personal education. He has a few relationships yep. that last him throughout his lifetime, but he doesn't care about really being liked or being admired. He really just cares about efficiency. So as the factory develops, you can see this kind of overarching control in everything. Right? Sure. He spares no expense in building the biggest, safest, most efficient, cleanest industrial complex in the U.S., and as the company becomes more successful and it's making money hand over fist at this point, practically every family yep. in America, every middle class family has a Ford Model T. Okay. What he decides to invest in is bringing all those things he's had to outsource into the company. So this is where you see the first like Ford coal mines and Ford railroads sure. and sawmills. He's trying to complete a complete vertical integration. Integration, right, Where yeah. he owns everything which, and controls everything that goes into the production of his cars. Which makes sense. A uh, quick sidebar, if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, this no, obsession please. with low waste, locally sourced stuff that's all efficient and can be controlled uh, plays into one of the truly interesting facts about Henry Ford. He hates okay. all livestock. He especially and famously hates cows. <laughs> They're a hugely inefficient farming animal. I get that. I am actually going to read you a quote about that. Okay. okay. It is a simple matter to take the same cereals that the cows eat and make them into a milk that is superior to the natural article and much cleaner. That's Henry Ford in 1921. The cow is the crudest machine in the world. Our laboratories have already demonstrated that cow's milk can be done away with, and the concentration of the elements of milk can be manufactured into scientific food by machines far cleaner than cows. This dude was anti-milk and cheese, Greg. I'm I'm with him, he man. He was pro-soybean. Go for it. He was anti-cheese. Okay. Okay. I right. would like to point your attention to a town in Upper Michigan called Alberta. Uh, so Alberta springs up around a sawmill. Okay. Um, and this is a Ford sawmill, and it's bringing lumber out of Ford-owned forest up there. Okay. In order to run this sawmill, Ford knows he needs people. So what he does is build a little, it almost looks like a play village. It has a huge sawmill and 12 little cookie cutter houses facing it alongside the dam and the logging equipment. It's just very precise. If you look at photos, it looks like a toy. Yeah. And He builds a company town. Yeah, it's a company town, but it's a yeah. very specific type of company town. It's very clean. It's very orderly. Sure. Everybody gets a little yard. Not enough space for a cow, but he does want you to grow veggies. <laughs> it's okay. drab, okay. and it's, it's too uniform. But the way he sells it is that this is a real step up from the kind of communities that would grow up organically around a factory. 
So sure. Ford's mind yeah. was doing a service to the people who would otherwise be in whatever house they could afford to build. He's paying them money. So who cares that you get the exact same house that everyone else has? You know, your kids now, are getting educated. is he giving educated. them the house? No, honey, he's renting them. <laughs> okay, I was going to say. He's not a philanthropist. Well, I understand. Well, I thought it might have been part of, like, their wages or something, but that makes sense. I mean, sense. they're paying for it out of their wages. Gotcha. Uh, so, of course, this is, like, bringing more of the family and personal life into his purview. He's controlling more of your life when you live in a little company town right. like this. There are dozens and dozens yep. of these little towns all over Upper Michigan and around wherever he has a Ford project. Okay. In 1919, he is thinking a little bit bigger. He becomes aware of a construction project in the Tennessee River Valley. So this is a dam okay. project across a river. The dam was built to power a pair of nitrate plants. That's nitrate for aluminum, sorry, ammunition and explosives, which the U.S. badly okay. needed for the war effort, right? So they spent most yep. of World War I building this site, and the factories start up production about two weeks after Armistice. So, whoops. <laughs> Very poor timing. Efficiency. That is our yep. theme for this episode. Uh, the Secretary of War has to offload the site, and Henry Ford makes an offer of $5 million. That's a lot of money for a dam and a pair of factories, but that's yep. not what Ford has in mind. He looks at these nitrate plants, and he decides that what he wants to do is build a huge company town utopia where you'd work in the dynamite okay. factory all day and then use the waste products as farm fertilizer for the acres of soybeans that you and your family would live off. Okay. From a 1922 Associated Press article, I'm just going to read you the headline because that's all there yep. is to it. Quote, Ford plans a city 75 miles in length, proposes to make Muscle Shoals greatest industrial undertaking in America. Bigger project to follow would have farmers harness every creek and brook that crosses their property. Hmm. That is a 75-mile-long company town. So think of, like, wow. a little Alberta on a massive scale. He wants everybody yeah. in the same kind of house. He wants everybody growing the same kind of stuff, the same kind of yard, and working in the same factories. I don't see a problem with that. Do you? Uh, no, sounds, sounds perfect, idyllic, everyone would love it. Uh, end of episode, right? <clears throat> yep. And uh, now the name of our podcast is Relative Successes. Is that yes. <laughs> yes. Sponsored by the Ford Motor Company. <laughs> oh, God. Not a corporate sponsor of this podcast, I feel like we should say. Yeah, All I mean, opinions yeah. Are nor, nor will they ever be. <laughs> Regrettably, the government is like, you know, I'm not sure that we want Ford Motor Company to own a 75-mile, 100,000-person city. I, I don't see the problem here. And after, like, a bunch of press articles and a beautiful map that came out in, gosh, I think it was Scientific American. Okay. Just, he put a lot okay. of architecture into this. There's a lot of planning. Henry Ford is really sad. He takes his toys. He goes home. He does not get to build Muscle Shoals, Tennessee, into a 75-mile-long plan city. Huh. And he has another problem on his hands, which is going to occupy his attention for the next minute. Yeah. Latex rubber is the one thing he doesn't have in his massive corporate, I don't know, would you call it an umbrella or a octopus? I'd call it a supply chain. <sighs> That's not very picturesque, but okay. I know. I'm sorry. So at this time, you can get rubber, which is produced from the sap of the Hevia brasiliensis tree, native to the Amazon yep. rainforest. You can buy this stuff only from the British. 
the British are controlling the trade from their rubber plantations in Sri Lanka and Singapore. You can also buy it from local tappers who tap the trees in the Amazon. Uh, but unlike on the colonial plantations, rubber tappers in South America are pretty low yield, so they have to deal with gathering the sap from naturally occurring trees out in the rainforest. It's labor-intensive. It's totally unmechanized. Right. Henry Ford looks at the rubber industry and decides, you know what? I'm just going to build my own plantation. That's going to be easier. I mean, sure. He can't understand why somebody hasn't already built a plantation, but crucially... He doesn't talk to anyone who could tell him why that is. Okay. And that's a running theme. At no point in this project sure. has anyone with a degree or experience in tropical agriculture consulted. <laughs> Maybe at the very end, but yeah. by then it's too late. He just assumes that he's the first okay. person smart enough to try this. Okay. Okay. So he goes sure. ahead and buys 2.5 million acres of rainforest in the Brazilian state of Para. Jeez. Of course, you're thinking... He's out to make money, but he's not. He's out to improve society. Quote, we will get our men in Brazil. We are not going to South America to make money, but to help develop that wonderful and fertile land. We'll train the Brazilians, and they'll work as well as any others. End quote. That's uh, Henry Ford in 1928. So, <laughs> so young and I'm full of optimism. I'm laughing because I know what happens next. <laughs> I mean... Uh, Ford gets conned pretty hard on this deal. Yeah. He hires yeah. a local named Jorge Viares, who claims to have close ties to government officials and uh, knows the rubber trade inside and out. He has neither of those things, uh, but he yeah. does make a lot of money. He does vanish in the middle of a particularly shady deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you do. Uh, Ford hires an American ship captain to manage the job of clearing the land for planting and setting up his most ambitious company town which is going to be called Fordlandia. Moment of silence for the perfect name for the Ford Motor Company, Company Town. Yeah. Uh, Oxholm is the opposite of Viares. He is honest to a fault. He is okay. just as incompetent. <laughs> His big thing is that he refuses to pay bribes. Ah, and he's also trying to import millions of dollars worth of bribes. Which you can't do if you're not going to pay the bribes. Yep. Uh, yep. So his stuff is like sitting out in the rain because he can't get his warehouse built. It's getting stolen because he can't get security to watch it yep. before it clears customs. God, okay. So under his management, just clearing a little bit of the jungle and getting the site ready for building drags on for three years. Yeah. Three years. It was supposed to take something like six months. Okay, but, you know, after that, everything's got to go better, right? Sure. And not all of that is Oxholm's fault. Right. First, oh, yeah. He's having a no, horrible no, no. time hiring for the project because 1920s Brazil is not particularly hungry for American dollars the way that Ford wants to give them American dollars. Right. 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 Uh, Ford's five dollar a day mindset depends on a, a skilled workforce that's eager to work to the exclusion of all else. Right. He needs people who need to work. And uh, and these are not them. <laughs> these people have well, hobbies and a home to go to. <laughs> It's a different culture and it's a different Absolutely, climate. yeah. Um, people hear about the job and hire on, but the expectation of an eight-hour workday, five days a week, with no break. Yeah. You know, you don't, you're expected to work through siesta because that's what they do in Detroit. Yeah. You know, you're not allowed to drink or party on your off hours. Sure. It's yeah. also really dangerous work, right? They're clearing by hand sure. with machetes and they're on foot. So a lot of people die from snake bites. Oh, 
Okay. Uh, tropical disease is a close second. Romantic. Yeah, that was actually going to be my it's first guess, but yeah. yeah. And the American style company town, which Oxholm is trying to build, is, you know, going up in fits and starts. The first thing they manage to finish is a hospital, which is promptly filled up by snakebite and malaria patients. Yeah. And at the same time he's trying to get the factory put together, his mismanagement results in things like machines being delivered to incomplete buildings. Okay. So he's wasting hundreds of thousands of dollars in equipment. That is Again, so <laughs> disheartening. <laughs> you know what it is not, Greg, is efficient. No, absolutely. This is like all the efficiency or all the inefficiency that the Ford Motor Company has been trying to eradicate from their processes like for 20 years comes back and bites them all in one project uh, uh. <laughs> we love to see it so after three years they get enough land cleared to start planting okay this is where it gets a little ridiculous oxholm copes brazil for europeans who are willing to go into the interior of the amazonian rainforest and collect some rubber seeds okay. he comes up with these two guys who are just drunk adventurers <laughs> right he gives them cash and no. sends them into the forest. <laughs> no, don't do that. That's that's the opposite of what you should do. Uh, and they disappear. Like, they take the money and go upstream and party I mean, for duh. weeks. Right? Yeah. Uh, they finally sober up enough to persuade some local members of the Munduruku tribe to gather seeds for them. They okay. pay them in trade goods, not money. Okay. Um, and at this point, Oxholm gets his act together. He hires a Wisconsinite named John Rogge to go find them. And after nearly, nearly dying of malaria, Rogge manages to make it to Fordlandia with the seeds. Okay. Right? And he's promptly made manager because while he's been gone, Oxholm has quit. And so has his Aww. replacement. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Oxholm finally gives up. Oxholm's children died. Oh, and God. That's what's been going on this whole time. It, this guy, this poor guy. Yeah, he's in geez. a job he's really ill suited for. His wife is sick the whole time he's there, and two of his and, children die. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. So, All right. there is well, a reason for his incompetence. Yeah. But he finally decides to go home, and he does. And that's John a Rocky good move. <laughs> is put in charge. He manages the plantation much more efficiently. Okay. So yeah, the planting good. takes place, finally. It's at exactly the wrong time of the year because nobody oh, knows. And hey. the factory starts to come together, right? So he oversees uh -huh. the finishing of this little these little bungalows for the American managers to live in with their families and their vegetable gardens. And okay. he puts up a water tower. He's able to do a lot of things that Oxholm couldn't. But in 1930, just as things are getting off the ground... He makes the mistake of getting rid of waiter service. Okay. Now, at this time, Fordlandia is running as like a combination of skilled and unskilled labor. It's a okay. logging camp, but it's also a construction camp. And okay. it's a agricultural camp because they're waiting for their trees to grow. There are right. hundreds of workers. They're mostly native Brazilians who are doing yep. that eight-hour workday in the rainforest. Incredibly hot and dangerous work. Yep. They're expected to do all the things the workers in Detroit are expected to do. Huh. They actually use a time clock. <laughs> okay. They punch in and out. They wear an ID badge what? in the jungle well, they're as the they're jungle. killing snakes with their machetes. Okay. Um, oh my God. They're expected to work efficiently and not drink. This feels and like a return... weird reboot of The Office. <laughs> like, it's that level of, really? Yeah. 
Michael Scott would would have been great. No, we want to make sure they've got their ID badges and their machetes. But in return, in return, the company is providing wages, cash sure. wages, which yep. is not common in this area. They're providing right. medical care for the worker and their family. They're That's, providing housing and yeah. they're providing food. But all of those are things that Henry Ford oversees and designs. Ah, uh, yes. So meals are we coming to the, <laughs> are the Henry yes, Ford diet. Yes. Here we go. Henry Ford believes heavily in canned vegetables. Yep. <laughs> yep. He'll allow a little fish, but uh, the rice has to be processed so that it doesn't have any flavor. Yep. And uh, for breakfast, you're going to get oatmeal. That's it. Okay. Okay. It's not free. Okay. Workers are charged against their pay. Oh. But until this decision, workers sit together in their work groups. So skilled laborers together. Yep. Right? Um, the people who are hauling logs out of the forest with their bare hands are sitting with their group. But they're being served by waiters. They're all being served by waiters. Okay. And that means there's no food line. Okay. But in Here December of 1930, yep. they decide to go cafeteria style to save a little extra time. And? And the line gets out of control. And on the first day, somebody gets really pissed off. Okay, you have to understand also, this is a group of like 800 people who have been working all morning. Yeah. They're hot and sweaty. They want their food and they want to be served. They don't want to have to stand in line. Right, right. So when they get in this line, they're wasting their lunch hour waiting for crappy canned beans from Michigan that they're paying for. Right. So you can kind of see where this riot comes from because a fistfight breaks out uh, and then just everything goes to hell. The workers smash everything. They smash every building in Fordlandia. Sorry, every window in Fordlandia. They set fire to a couple buildings ruin some equipment, get really drunk. They uh, run a bunch of Ford trucks into the river. And it goes on for days. Yeah. And they also chase the Americans right out of town. Sure. It goes on for days and days before Rocky manages to get everyone settled down with the help of the Brazilian army. Okay, yeah, yeah. Back in Dearborn, Michigan, Henry Ford is now hemorrhaging money in the U.S. thanks to the Great Depression. But instead of writing Fordlandia off, he doubles down. He has even more ambitious plans. Okay. He starts putting out a bunch of press releases uh, about how wonderful Fordlandia will be when it's up and okay. running. Not about how much profit it's going to generate, but how much good it's going to do to the people living Okay. There. Right. He's going to bring electricity into the region. He's going to bring paved roads. He's going to have a water purification plant. This is all over the U.S. newspapers. Okay. The Iron Mountain Daily News, I'm just going to give you a little sample, yeah. said, quote, Henry Ford has transplanted a large slice of 20th century civilization to the Amazon, end quote. And that is the overwhelming message of this publicity. Right. He hires a new plantation manager, Archibald Johnson, and it's under his supervision that things finally do start to improve. Okay. Socially. So the housing improves. The town takes on a look of like a suburb in the Midwest. They have these wide paved streets, fire hydrants, sidewalks, uh, 200 houses for workers and families. Okay. They're called Swiss cottage type. Okay. And they are incredibly ugly. They're designed in Detroit. Yeah. And they have the worst possible metal roofs that make them unbearably hot during the day. One visitor describes staying in one of these houses as, quote, a midget hell. Okay. (laughs) Evocative imagery. They're great. Yeah, sure. Everyone this loves them. This is fantastic. Uh, but they're on these wide streets, big lawns, spaced out trees, because, again, Ford wants everyone to be growing a garden. He also wants his workers to enjoy themselves. Okay. Right, but not too right. much. So he has a swimming pool built. Ah. 
He has a soccer program for the kids. Okay. He institutes a garden club. Okay. <laughs> and he sets up square dancing programs. <laughs> <laughs> That's the topper right there. That's the one you, yeah. The whole thing was leading to that. Yep, it's all about the square dance. He actually builds a dance hall, a square dance hall, that doubles as a movie theater that shows family movies. Okay. And the school and hospital are expanded and modernized. And to Ford's credit, they serve both the American and Brazilian workers. And all this time, the clearing continues, and the first crop of rubber trees are growing. Good. Everything's off to a great start. Yes. Maybe you remember that I mentioned Ford didn't plan this plantation with any help right. from an expert. Yeah. Um, he knew it could be done because he knew the British had done it in okay. similar climates. But he didn't understand or really care about the life cycle of the wild rubber tree, right? The ones that have been producing rubber for people yeah. for thousands of years. He was unclear on how they reproduced and what their oh, tests no. were. So in the wild, rubber trees grow at a distance from each other, and the surrounding plants right. make kind of a buffer. But that's not the way Ford Lando yeah. was designed. Uh, so as the trees matured, they've been planted like 20 feet apart. It looks yeah. like an orchard, only yeah, with that really makes small sense. trees. That, yeah. that would be exactly how I would imagine Henry Ford making it. So, yes. So as the trees get larger and bigger, and they have this kind of yeah. foggy climate, so eventually the trees begin yeah. to touch. Right, The canopies get so big they start brushing up against each other. And that means... That once yep. this fungus yep. that the rubber tree is particularly yep. susceptible to gets going, the fungus right just marches from thing. tree to tree. Yep. Uh. Right. That's the South American leaf blight. And in 1935, none of the trees turn oh, out to God. be resistant. So it just wipes everything out. It doesn't kill the trees. It just makes them lose their leaves. Uh, but it's complicated to treat them because the rubber plant grows really slowly, but they're tall. Okay meaning they can't be sprayed from the ground. And they had also been planted on a hillside, which makes it even more complicated to treat. Uh, so in 1936, the year the oldest part of the plantation should have been tapped for latex for the first time, the trees were all infected, leafless, and not producing yeah. latex. Okay, so the workers abandoned the town. We're there already. Okay, okay. <laughs> like, this is just not going to No, work. I'm just saying, like, well, okay, that's, that's the one. We're getting there, we're all getting right. there. This is 1936. Cool. Now, they don't leave Brazil, because they have a lot of time and money invested here, they start up a new planned town, and this one's called Belterra. Right, just down the river, right? Right. Okay. And socially, this is much more successful than Fordlandia. It's built more quickly, more efficiently, yep. and at its peak, it houses, feeds, provides medical care, educates, and or provides employment for over 7,000 people. Wow. And socially, it's a lot more successful, probably because a lot of the kind of Henry Ford designed restrictions in Fordlandia were relaxed. and sure. Nobody was required to square dance and you can have an animal. Yeah. Okay. Right? Instead of a cucumber patch. Gotcha. Also, the houses get thatch roof this time, which had to have been a huge relief. Yeah. <laughs> Just thinking about sitting under a tin roof on uh -uh. a hot day. Is no. no, 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 no. Yeah. All right, so the cleared land here, because this land has also been cleared as part of the plantation. Yep. So here they start a nursery and they plant 700,000 baby rubber trees. Okay. And the humidity in this area is lower. This land is flat. They are pretty sure they can control the blight with aggressive spraying. Okay. However, these trees are only a couple years old when lace bugs, red mites, <laughs> Come and on. descend. <laughs> And again, because the trees are so close together and there's no natural predators yeah. in between them, yeah. they just go from plant to plant. I want to be clear here. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, 
I'm not expressing disappointment that the uh, the plant the plantation isn't working out. I just feel bad for the trees. It's a massive. Like if you think of the amount of deforestation that they had to do to plant uh-huh. these trees, and then the trees just die. Yeah. God. Uh, silence for the millions of <laughs> species. The entire environment of this, this 2.5 yep. million acres. Okay, so planting slows and then stops as the infants infestation becomes overwhelming, and the plantation managers realize that you know usually when you have a problem with plants, some of them are resistant. That's not the case with these rubber trees. They seem to all be affected equally, yeah. None of them are resistant. Okay. Uh, At the same time, a federal judge in Brazil rules that workers have the right to unionize. Oh, no. Henry Ford doesn't like that. No. Fordlandia is immediately like, yes, we'll take a union, please. And Ford is forced to settle and bargain with the new union. No. Which he hated. Yep. He's strongly anti-union. Because it cuts into efficiency. Because he alone yeah. knew what was best yeah. for his workers. No. The workers didn't know. Nope. He knew. Yeah. Uh, but there is a silver lining, Greg. Oh, good. Yeah. At this point, the, the few ants came and wiped out <laughs> remaining the entire thing. trees. Sorry. 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 Go ahead. The few remaining trees that were planted outside Fordlandia and Belterra are producing latex. Oh. Okay. Just as the market is crashing. Because synthetic latex was just invented, wasn't it? That is correct. Yay! Yeah. I, I thought I had my time about right. <laughs> Got a little petroleum product for you guys. What do you think? So this is 1945, and that year, Henry Ford was in his 70s. He finally just threw in the towel. Sure. Uh, the last of the Ford properties in Para were abandoned. And when I say abandoned, people just left. Oh. <laughs> 30,000 acres of cleared land and dead and dying rubber trees. Okay. Homes, schools, sidewalks, fire hydrants. Uh, the hospitals continued to serve locals for a few years, but eventually even they closed up. Okay. 3.5 million rubber trees were planted at Fordlandia and Belterra. Yeah. And the project had cost just over $20 million in wow. 1940 money. Yeah. Wow. Ford sold the land back to the Brazilian government for a quarter of a million dollars. Okay. And that's it. That's the end of the story. Um, huh. About 90 people continued to live there. Some of the buildings, some of the buildings are still there. You know, recently they've seen an influx in yeah, people Yeah, there's about there. 3,000 people living there now. Right, because there's a new sawmill. And they can literally, apparently, I was reading into the legality of this, but mm-hmm. apparently they can legally just go up and, like, if they find a standing structure, just take it and claim it and say, this is my house now. Yeah, because it belongs to the government, and the government has said that's okay. Because they okay. they own it now. And because that land was cleared, I mean, the jungle did creep back in, but it was cleared very aggressively. Uh, it is yeah, easier, yeah, yeah, yeah. and because there are roads there, it's easier to get logging equipment in and out. So there's the fact that there's a sawmill there and people are living there now makes sense. That's it's kind of neat. I'm all for I'm all for affordable slash free housing for people who really need it. <laughs> sure, absolutely. That part is wonderful. Um, I just wish they didn't all have tin roofs. I did actually see a documentary where a woman was like, "No, I built a little house uh, down the street, but this bungalow is where I keep my cow <laughs> during the rain." <laughs> I mean, sure. Oh, Henry Ford would not have been down with that. No. And that is the very bizarre and very American story of Fordlandia. I love it. What do you think? Any questions? <laughs> I, I, I'm leaving out a lot. <laughs> you have to, because we only have so much time on these uh, episodes. But I think to me, it's it's 
you know, it, it's very indicative of that attitude of, I can do this better, you know? It's the attitude of, I know what you want more than you know. Yeah. Or I know what you yep. need more than you yep. know. So I'm just going to give it to you. It's that paternalist yep. paternalism that you see in a lot of, like, colonial sure uh, philosophy, I guess, if you can call it philosophy. You know, I'm here because yeah. I know what's good for you and you don't. So I'm just going to give you the yeah. things that... It's kind of heartwarming that the general Brazilian, like, population's reaction to it was, I mean, I don't really need this job, so... <laughs> I mean, he was Peace hiring <laughs> people with skills and he was training them. Uh, sure. At one point they had, like, a whole bunch of master masons that were trained up to put the put the buildings together. So he trained this right, whole right. generation of people to be stoneworkers and masons. I don't know that that is superior to the education they would have received working on other projects, but I guess you could say yeah, it is yeah. a, a positive. And of course, the schools and the hospitals did provide services for the community that were not available. Sure. So you can argue that he did at least some good. Sure. If you want to. <laughs> if you want to. And uh, and the water tower is still standing. Still there. Today. It's a local landmark. Yeah, you can see it from the river. Yeah. There's no water in it. And the plumbing. Now, I read that the plumbing that is hooked up to it still works, but it's not used by the people who live there. Sure. So, I mean, would you? <laughs> well, I just feel like it would taste like there would be soybeans in it or something. Or some vitamin that he decided everybody metal. needed. <laughs> oh, oh no! It's coming out of your paycheck, but you're all getting vitamin C. All right. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative dot disasters at gmail dot com. Or, if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram, at relative.disasters? Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? All right, so this is one that we've had on our list for a very long time, and uh, we keep getting requests from different folks to cover it, so... Uh, by popular demand, uh, the next episode, we are going to take a look at the Halifax Explosion. Oh, that's a doozy. That's yeah, a big story. It's a big one. So, uh, if, uh, if you know what that is, great. And if you don't, you'll learn. It's a terrible yeah. intro. No, it's not a terrible intro. It's a it's terrible just, disaster. I'm, there's no way to make light or be... It's a it's a horrible disaster. Uh, that does sound like an amazing discussion, though. Can't wait to talk to you about it. <laughs>